calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Reppin. We have a great guest today. She's a prominent casting director in Hollywood with clients that include Apple, Adidas, Facebook, to name a few. She's also the founder and executive director of this incredible nonprofit organization based in Sierra Leone called Shine On. The organization works to help and educate over 500 children, many of them orphaned by various diseases like Ebola. She's been featured in publications like Elle, Vanity Fair, and People. She's passionate. She's inspiring. She is Tiffany Persons. Tiffany, thanks so much for coming to hang out with us. You are involved with some amazing projects. You're a casting director, but you're also the founder of this amazing organization and school called Shine On. You've got so much going on that I'm going to let you break it down. So I am the founder of Shine on Sierra Leone, and Shine on Sierra Leone is an organization that focuses on the inner development as well as academic life of children and communities in Sierra Leone, West Africa. We're 14 years old, I'm proud to say, and I'm also here in the United States and Los Angeles, I'm a casting director. But the kind of casting director I am is what makes it a little more interesting and in alignment with what I do in Sierra Leone. My focus is real people and real stories. And it is my joy. <laughs> it is literally my joy because, as hopefully you'll come to learn by the end of this, I love people and I love us and I love our stories. So those are the two things that I spend my time on. And of course, they each have antennas, but... That's, that's what it boils down to. Well, just those two are huge efforts, but also there's so many layers that we can sort of discuss in terms of representation. So before we kind of delve into that, tell me a little bit about what representation means to you. To me, it actually means more than just gender or ethnicity. It actually means to me, we are 7 billion individual people on this planet. And 
for whatever reason, we have each been touched with one gift or another or this ism or that. And so it is embracing and including all of that and having space for all of that. Right. All that deliciousness that comes with each of us. That's repping me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That was a beautiful definition of representation. Now, you are a casting director in entertainment and media. Obviously, you know, media, it's a very powerful platform. And you work on some major campaigns. And you work with brands that we all know. But you cast real people, real stories. Can you tell me about the importance of representation, especially with these huge brands? Well, well, first of all, I'm really excited and proud that I am in the industry at this time. This past 20 years has been an unprecedented trajectory in the history of representation. In the past 20 years, what I've seen in commercials specifically is I've seen an opening to include not just same-sex families or same-sex relationships, but also um, LGBTQ, also single parents, out there for single parents because that's me that was the, I will never forget when I saw the the spec sheet and it said single parent and I was overjoyed because we you know that's just not something that's usually included I've watched brands be more open however I will say this I know it all boils down to money right and one brand or two brands were the brave ones and they took that step right and once they busted down the doors i'm gonna i'm not gonna name any names but one of the first and the first commercials that i did was a powerful commercial and it was a brand who wanted an interracial family a single parent family a same-sex family and what else was there i guess that was it i just feel like there was even more and we did these different vignettes that were gorgeous. And it just was a slice of life of these families. Do you know that the brand received hate mail in the thousands? And do you know what they did with that hate mail? What did they do? They responded by printing out every single one of the hate pieces of hate mail, rolling it up, creating a scroll and making a piece of art that was like 20 feet by 20 feet that said love made out of the hate mail. That is awesome. Exactly. So this was the opening to now it is, it's almost to the point where it's like, okay, of course we know you want same sex families because it's like, they're just following the curve, but that's okay. It doesn't matter the reason why it's happening. That's what an incredible, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just going to have to ask you, can you please tell me the brand? Cause I want to go out and buy it by the buckets. <laughs> well, that particular brand was honey made. That particular brand was honey. I don't know if you eat cereal, but I'm gonna start eating it a lot now. I'm gonna get all my friends to eat the cereal. That's all I'm gonna eat for lunch, dinner. That's amazing. What a beautiful thing. But before we go further, I wanna back up a little bit and hear about your background and how you grew up. So I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s, a really, really amazing time. <laughs> yes. And what's interesting about my life is I had two lives, right? My mother and father, or my mother, because my mother was a single mother, essentially. My father was in our life, but he did not live with us. And so my mother was the first in her family to move or the second in her family to move to the suburbs. So I was raised in a suburban lifestyle. 
but my family, my cousins were in Detroit. And so my suburban life was safe, predictable, and, you know, sometimes a little bit boring. Right? <laughs> um, but my Detroit life with my cousins, oh my God, it was all the way live. It was walking to the corner store. It was Kool-Aid. It was laughing till we cried, roasting, you know, walk, just legendary stories of things that happened in the neighborhood and loyalty and family and fun. So that's my upbringing. That's beautiful. Now, I grew up in the suburbs of New York and I'm Asian American, um, but I did not have anybody that I could really look to in my neighborhood that I could actually connect with. When you're growing up, we're all trying to find our way. We're all trying to fit in and figure ourselves out. But when you don't have anyone that you could look to um, that you can really connect with, I, feel, I felt more separated from everybody else, more awkward. Can you tell me a little bit about whether or not you had any heroes or inspirations or people that you could look to that you related to? Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. No, I did not, not, not so much. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I think just that very absence and void is the reason why I am the person that I am today. I went to school, I was one in three or one in two black children, depending on the year. And I will never forget the day that I found out I was black. And so it was second grade and I had taken a week. I remember starting on Monday and just looking around at the classroom and just studying everybody and just feeling different. And I could not figure out why I was different. It's to your point, just feeling awkward and out of my body. And so I'm looking around and I see, you know, Kelly, her hair is in this goldish color. It's yellow. It's swinging side to side. Her ponytail is gorgeous. I just love it. Right. And then there's, you know, Michael and this, and, and I, then I look at myself and I'm like, you know, my mother has me in braids all the time because my hair as she said, wouldn't grow, right? So so I'm wearing braids. And I think all of this started because there was an incident in first grade where I was on the playground and somehow one of my braids fell out. Well, I don't know if you know this, okay, but most people who, most black women or black people who have braids, sometimes they're extension braids, right? And so they can fall out of your hair and slip out of your hair anytime. So mine fell out on the playground, but I didn't know that. So my braid falls out on the playground and we get back inside and we're all sitting after lunch and the teacher stands in front of the class and holds up the braid, which she had put in a plastic bag and says, has anyone lost their braid? And the school fell for me, right? I just sunk down in my seat. And you know, when you're first grade, you think, well, if I don't say anything, no one will know. And everyone's looking around to see. And then finally, I raised my hand because she was not moving. And I raised my hand and I go, it's me. And she rushes to my side and says, oh, my God, are you okay? Does your head hurt? My and God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know. It's okay, right? I was mortified. And I think that was the beginning of the complete separation that I felt from everyone at my school. And so in second grade, I just did this thing where I'm looking around and I'm Finally, on Friday, I asked my mom, mom, why do they look like that? And why do I look like this? And why doesn't my hair do that? And then she says, oh, it's because you're black. And I made a decision that I didn't want to be black at that moment. 
And I certainly did not want to be black and I didn't want to be dark skinned. And I looked around everywhere in the world to find myself and I could never find myself. Yeah. I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm so sorry about that. I can absolutely relate to you in the sense that I actually went up to my mom and I was like, why do I look like this? Um, I want an American nose. Yeah. I wanted to have blonde hair, blue eyes. I think it's something that most underrepresented groups think about. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but obviously I knew I was Asian, but I don't know if I ever felt this outward sense of pride. Um, it wasn't until I saw the movie Crazy Rich Asians and I walked out of the theaters did I have this tangible sense of pride. Mm-hmm. Pride for my people, pride for being Asian, because I was never really surrounded by people that looked like me or I could see on screen um, in that scope that I could relate to. So for me, white was all I saw and it was all I knew. So that was my default. And it's embarrassing to admit it, but that's the state that we're at because the default was white and you don't realize that there's something else out there. But for you, Tiffany, when did you go from losing your braid in school, asking your mom why you looked the way you do, to having those tides turn and embracing who you are? You know, it took time. It was definitely after high school, right? So I went through school really hating my dark skin. And I just want to just point this out. I literally looked on, I don't care if it was MTV Raps, I don't care where it was, I was looking everywhere, BET, I was trying to find someone in the limelight who had skin as dark as me, or a nose like mine, could not find it. You couldn't find it at all, right? I, I was like, oh, KRS-One has a nose, like, I mean, it was crazy, <laughs> like, of course, my, my nose is nothing like KRS-One, but that's how ridiculous um, our minds are, right? right? And so, and, and beautiful, but they, you know, they play tricks on us. So, It took time. I remember the first time I felt beautiful and black. I was standing outside of Morris Brown College in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was driving from Morris Brown to Clark, Atlanta, and I just felt gorgeous and black and cute. And I was like, I... I am okay. You know, I was around my people. And that's interesting because Morris Brown, his, they're historically black colleges. And I did everything I could to get there. And it did have a positive impact on the way I felt about myself. However, there were a couple of other details. Um, but the most important time for me was when I stepped off of that airplane in Sierra Leone for the first time. And I saw my uncle in the faces of the porter. I saw my grandmother. I saw my Aunt Easter. I mean, it was remarkable. And I didn't care that this country was known as the least developed country on the Human Development Index. They all looked like me. And so I felt valued. I felt valuable. Right. And... That was the most powerful moment of me reclaiming the beauty of who I am. What an incredible experience to share. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. 
most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleepwave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Because this is a podcast, I have to let people know, Tiffany, you are beautiful. <laughs> like, you, you are beautiful. But going from, you know, you flipping through magazines and looking to TV to see somebody that looks like you, and now you're working in media, which is still very much dominated by a certain look, and you're the casting director now to boot. Can you talk about the shift in position and what that enables you to do? Oh, exactly. It's so wonderful. So what I get to do is I get to put forward to my directors and my agencies the women that I find beautiful, right? So we know that in the history of television, the introduction of black faces, especially in women, were light complexion, curly hair, and even mixed race, right? right? So then what I do now is as I choose I choose beautiful chocolate faces. I choose natural hair, which is a really important thing for me, wanting to make sure that women are shown in media that have their own natural hair, that we don't have to relax it. We don't have to straighten it. We can get braids if we want to, but we don't have to. We are perfect the way that we came out of the womb. And so those are what I put forward. And therefore, I know that I play a part in those faces being seen by other little beautiful children around the world, whether they're brown or not, because it's equally important for you to see yourself. And it's also important for you to see others that don't look like you and see the beauty in them. I want to draw a sharper contrast. So how has your personal experience of looking for yourself in media and not seeing anyone that looks like you, how are you using that personal experience and now your position to make sure there is more diversity and to make sure that another young child does not have the same experience you had? Well, one of the things that I say that really is important to me is the work that I do in Sierra Leone. So one might think that because I'm in Sierra Leone, a continent full of people that look like me, it is not full of people that look like me that are doing what I am doing. And so what that means is the world of NGO, the world of humanitarians, and the world of philanthropy, a lot of them don't look like me. For instance, and this is not just in Africa, this is in India, this is in many places where aid is a big part of the economy. What happens is because whether it's a white man or a white woman, blonde hair, but whatever it is, 
that is associated with having, that is associated with freedom, that is associated with intelligence, that is associated with savior. And so you can see a two-year-old who can barely talk and is and wobbling down the street, run after a person that is Caucasian yelling, white man, white man, give me money, give me money with their hand out. And when I saw that many years ago, 15 years ago, when I first went to Sierra Leone, I was struck. And so the work that I do in Sierra Leone, it's twofold. Well, it's manifold, right? Because I am not only doing the work that we're doing, which is investing in the inner development and connecting them with the power of who they are so that they know who they are. And the, the whole goal is to help to alleviate that aid dependent mentality so that they see others as better than them, just like I did. You know, because even though I went to this private school, I thought I was never as good as as, as my beautiful Kelly with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Right. I just wanted to be Barbie. And if I didn't look like Barbie, I didn't really feel like I was good enough or I Me didn't too. feel like I was as good as. Right. So when I get to stand with my young children in Sierra Leone and they are looking at me and I am loving them with my full and total self. And I know that I am there because my liberation is bound up with theirs. I know that I am, I'm doing the work. I'm doing that work that I'm being that person that I so desperately wanted to see. And that feels so good. Can I tell you, I'm just, it's, beyond impressive, um, the humanitarian efforts, your awareness and your heart and the time that you're putting into it. It is incredible. Um, but how did you go from, it's like two different planets, right? Hollywood casting to Sierra Leone. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of happened? Following my bliss. That's how it happened. And so the one part of my life that we haven't talked about is my spiritual journey. Funny enough, it started one day when I was in Atlanta and I was on my knees praying. It was one of those tough, challenging times. And I was on my knees praying. And because I went to a Catholic school and because that Catholic school was mostly white, there was a white Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes um, that was hanging in the chapel. That was my go-to Jesus, right? Okay. So one day I'm praying to get through the situation and my little blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus pops up. And I just kind of look up from my prayer and I go, who are you? (laughs) I was like, what is going on? Aren't you supposed to be from Jerusalem? Why do you like, it was the beginning of my, the rest of my life. And very shortly after that, I read the book, The Conversations with God, Celestine Prophecy. And I began on this journey of connecting to my own God, my own spirituality, and really taking responsibility for the way that I moved in the world. And so I went to school, and then I'll just jump to my degree from Georgia State University, ultimately was from Georgia State University. My degree is in filmmaking, and I went to film school to become a documentarian. I fell in love with the idea of wanting to share the stories of the people that live in this world and on this planet. So that's what I wanted to do. But this was in 1990. When did I graduate? In 1998, which was pre-Michael Moore times, right? Yes, yes. Like, Mike Moore has, like, kind of come and gone in the way that he was, but documentaries were not cool. Nobody wanted to watch a documentary, right? Basically, the genre for starving artists and things to never be seen. 
and you just <laughs> poured years of your life and that was it. exactly so I wanted to be a documentarian and I was moving to Los Angeles and there wasn't really a documentary industry I was looking in the papers looking for PBS jobs but it just wasn't clicking and so I had a friend who pulled me into the world of music videos and that was my entry into the world of entertainment so I was like okay I'll do this and then I ended up working for one of the most incredible and prolific um, music video directors is Dave Myers. And so I worked with him. We had 16 MTV nominations the first year I worked with him. I mean, it was nonstop. And then it came to a point where I, because my heart was really about being a documentarian and sharing stories. So I went to uh, David and I said, well, simply what happened is my friend, dear friend, Saul Williams had just come back from Africa and he had visited different places in Africa and he had run into a young amputee boy from Sierra Leone. This 10 year old boy, his arm was, had been amputated during the war and Saul met him and I would say it had been maybe six months since that happened, but the boy was, you know, amazing, eager, and they were sharing school supplies and he was so excited. And the boy said, he said, Oh, you're from America. We love hip hop. We love JC. We love, you know, and they're like, oh, we love it. They're so awesome. And then they said, but why do they put their diamonds in the camera? Do they know what is happening to us? And that was the question that this little boy brought back through Saul. And I didn't know what was happening to them. And I didn't know about Sierra Leone or what Sierra Leone was. And I certainly at the time didn't know that it was a country where 33% of the world's diamonds came from. So I was educated in this new way and I thought, wow, I wanna do a documentary that follows the path of a diamond from the earth all the way to the consumer to share this, what's going on with everyone. So that was how my initial connection with Sierra Leone started. These are amazing stories. I definitely wanna talk more about your organization, Shine On. But before we do, I wanted to kind of stay on casting a little bit longer. Can you tell us how the landscape has really shifted in the last few years? And being that you work in media and you're the casting director, you work on some major projects, huge brands. But at the end of the day, you still need to execute what the client wants. You still have to give them what they're asking for. Still, you're in a great position to kind of push the boundaries and make sure that there is more diversity, that there is more inclusion. Can you tell me about that shift in landscape and what you're doing to kind of push that conversation forward? So the good thing is that the landscape has changed 1,000% in the last few years, 1,000%. I've worked with brands that for decades, maybe even almost, almost 100 years, have been advertising using mostly Caucasians, or only Caucasian, and are now stepping up to the table and saying, you know what, we want to do something completely different. We want to change our branding. We want to open the scope. We want to be inclusive. We, we would like to be inclusive, and we want your help. And so what? how I get to play in this, in this beautiful this sandbox with them is that I get to bring them ideas And this is also through the director. I I have incredible directors that I work with, you know, that 
are inspired to see whether it's a Sikh family. Oh, wow. All different, you know, Muslim. And and so it's a beautiful thing. So I get to go out and find these different representations. It's not as simple as black and white, right? And I'll just bring up Sikh again because, you know, these are they're subgroups that really want to be included. Again, going back to that, my first comment of there's 7 billion of us on the planet and everyone wants to see themselves or somehow feel a vibration that is similar to their own, right? So to feel included. So I, I seek to find those subgroups and, and bring them into the fold and give them an opportunity to be chosen by the agency and the director. For instance, you know, when you look at when you think, okay, well, we're going to include black people. Well, black people is not a one type of person. <laughs> there are so many, you know, black people is it's a very, it's a verb. It's like, it's a lot. It's a lot right. of different um, feelings and, and nuances and isms. And I love getting into those different isms. And I think they're all very important. But what's great is to hear from a casting director like yourself that not only recognizes the need and value of representation, but that there are nuances within each group. Can you describe a time where you found yourself needing to have a conversation with a client that may not have noticed or realized those nuances within each community? Yeah. What were those conversations like? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I want to be as gentle with this as possible, right? Because what I do know and what I believe is that we are all on this planet doing the best that we can. So whether it's an agency or the agent who's working on it doesn't really know how to describe what they're looking for. In their mind, they're seeing a picture, but they're not realizing where it comes from. They just see the ethnicity and then they just speak that, but they really do want something that is more nuanced. They really are seeing something that is, that has this energy that they're looking for. So yes, I have to work with them to help to, to refine that because it can be a waste of time and money if I go in one direction or if I don't go in the direction that they're actually looking for. When you do this, can we talk about how the benefit, I mean, how the brands benefit because the stories are richer, right? The representation is richer. How does it help the brands and also Hollywood when you, people like you are seeking those real life stories and real life diversity and real life representation? Because when I see something like that, I'm like, wow, that, I feel so good about it that I, and I'm not, I mean, I was joking about going to get cereal, but I'm not. I'm really going to go out and, and support this brand as, as much as I possibly can. And I'll be really honest with you. I don't like cereal, but I'm going to like cereal. I love it, Evelyn. I love it. How does that help the brands and the world, really? Well, you asked two questions. Yeah. You asked, how does it help them to use yeah. more people? That's yes. one question. Yeah. And it helps them tremendously because, you know, using actors is great. It, it shares the message, but using real people, it is tangible. You can feel energetically the difference. We're talking about, we're all made of energy, right? And so when you reuse a real story, energetically, you touch people at a level that you just cannot touch any other way, right? So it's, it's magic is what it is. It's magic. And what I will say about me and the gift that I have been given that this is my work, 
It's unbelievable because I love my work so much. So when I'm, whether I'm meeting someone on the street and the moment I come up to them, I'm seeing them in their fullest, most beautiful self. So they experience that. And then the way that I come to them, I come to them in a way that I am vulnerable. I am open and I am flawed and you know, imperfect. I'm just simply myself because that's exactly what I want from them. So even the team of people that I have working with me, this is what we have to learn. They all have to learn to be that same way. You got to show your real self if you want that real self from the other person you're talking to. So beautiful. Let's go back to the incredible, I mean, really incredible and outstanding Standing work that you are doing with this school. Now, I know that this school is multifaceted. It is um, Sierra Leone in Africa, Shine On. You help over 260 kids. It's like 500 now. <laughs> oh, wow. So you're you're helping over 500 kids now. Um, some of them are orphaned, right, from um, uh, Ebola and, and various diseases. Yeah. This school isn't just about that. It's a multifaceted school. You do computer literacy, you do health, you um, deal with adult literacy, you deal with clean water, you have an arts program. So tell us more about it. When I first got to Sierra Leone, it was originally a primary school, right? And it was all about, I was going to provide every child within this village that I had lived in with access to an education for as long as I lived. That was my mantra. That was my commitment. And the moment that I started to do that, I realized that there is a lot that goes into educating a child. There are a lot of spokes on the wheel because if a child is sitting and has not eaten dinner and has not eaten breakfast and is sitting in your classroom expected to actually learn, that's impossible. It's an impossible, impossible ask, right? So that's when these other programs started to take shape because they're necessary. They're really necessary. And so we are, we have our elementary school. We are soon to have our secondary school, which is very exciting. It opens fall 2020. So just very excited about that. And then we uh, have a, an onsite health clinic so there are over, over a million people each year that die from malaria, and most of them are under five years old. So as you can imagine, our school was a part of that, that horrific statistic, and now we have an on-site health clinic. So if they have malaria, if they have typhoid, worms, jaw, I mean, whatever, handled immediately. And we have a computer, a digital literacy center. Anyways, I'll let you go up. That is some beautiful, life-changing work. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the stories and the impact that you're making, that you're hearing from the kids? I mean, you are in direct contact with these children. Not only are you, and I don't think this can be emphasized enough, it's not just an education because people can't learn if you're starving. You are keeping them healthy. You are nourishing them um, spiritually, physically. Can you tell me about maybe a personal story or experience that a child came up to you and expressed, <laughs> said something, or or was there a moment that you that hit you that you realized 
the profound impact that you're making. Can you share that? Whether it be them seeing you and saying, wow, I see beauty in a face that looks like mine. I'm sure you have many stories, but was there one that you could share with us that really made you realize like, wow. You know, there are, there are, there are so many, to be honest. There are so many. I mean, it's been 14 years. But the first one that came to mind is a year ago, two years ago, we were, as a result of an award that I received from Eckhart Witzigman, um, an award for creative responsibility, we were able to buy the first school bus in Sierra Leone. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not like it's not like it's the school bus here, but it is a school bus, and it takes over fifty children to secondary school, whereas previously they had to walk nine miles to school and nine miles home each day in torrential rains to to reach and to go for their education. So this little boy looked at me, and he came up to me, and he's a he's a boy of few words, and he's maybe thirteen years old. And he said, this is the happiest day of my life. And he broke down in tears. And it was just a moment where I was moving a million miles an hour. I was trying to get the book. I was trying to do all of these things. And I just had to stop and be with him and realize that in this, his 13 years, that this was the happiest moment because why? Because he was going to be able to not have to walk to school every day and was going to have a ride to school that felt, I got it. I mean, I, there's there's many stories like that, but that one to me and yeah. What a powerful experience that must have been. And then when you hear stories like this, you realize again how lucky we are here that most of our kids have buses to go to school. Um, you and I talked on the phone prior to this podcast, but you said something to me on the phone where I want to make sure that we get this in the podcast. And it echoes back to something you had said earlier, but you said, I want these kids to see a face like mine that shows them that it is beautiful, that, you know, that they see themselves in me. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I will take it back to... In my own world, in my inner world, I made up a story that unless I saw it, I really couldn't do it. It was seeing someone else gave me the permission to live into it myself. And what I want for them is for them to see that they are the answers to their own problems. They are the answers to everything that they could ever want. And yes, I look exactly like them. And so they can come up with solutions. They can co-create. They can, they can dream. They can be, they can do, they can have. Whatever they believe that I am, because to me, like when they look at me, I represent what the white man represents. But now it's me who looks exactly like them who's doing these things. So now you know, it's that innate little voice and that little thing inside you said, yeah, that's you. You can do it too, because that's you. For people who still may not feel seen, who still may not feel heard, what would your advice to them be? What would you say to them? What would I say to them? My advice is simply to know that what you are experiencing right now is refining you 
and molding you to be the person that you were born to be. And the character that you develop by going through what you're going through now is actually what you need to to grow up or to basically contribute to the world the voice that it has. So I want to say that again, right? But what I wanted to start off by saying is that everything that happened to me has made me exceptionally inclusive, deeply empathetic, and wholeheartedly embracing to almost, to, not almost, to everyone on this planet. And it is because of what I went through that I am the way that I am today. So my advice is to know that you are being grown for something extraordinary. So always know that whatever you are experiencing that you don't like, you are going to get to be the answer to that in your life. What an incredible lesson to pass on. So how does representation make us better for all of us? You know, I think that when we have more diversity, it gives us a richer tapestry in our lives and it widens our perspective. And with that wider perspective, we're able to gain more compassion. And we're better when we have all of these different unique walks of life. Everyone's contributing something different. But Tiffany, my question to you is, you know, what do you think? How does everyone benefit from having more representation? It's honestly like, I don't even understand the question because it's like, of course it's better. It's like, right. what do you mean? Like, I don't even know how to answer but, it. Yeah, like, yeah. Who am I talking to? Everybody knows it's better. Everybody, Everybody knows right, it's right? better. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why it hasn't happened because of fear. And because regardless, if we're looking at whether it's Caucasian or whatever, we know that other ethnicities are delicious and wonderful. That's why we're stealing everything from them, right? <laughs> so, that's we know that. And I say we because I am everyone, right? right? But we know that. We know better. So now it's just time. Okay, let's cut, cut it, cut it out. Stop yeah. stealing, stop acting like it's ours and embrace all of this beauty that we have been given on the planet that comes through each of us. If people want to get more involved with Sierra Leone and Shine, how can they contribute to help? You probably won't believe this, but it costs for us to educate a child for one year in this very special education for us to feed them every day our organic bone broth soup with fresh moringa and sweet potato, which is a deeply rich healing broth and soup. And for them to have that every single day of the week, that's why, by the way, that's 52 weeks out of the year, not just during school. And for them to also have this on-site clinic access to it, it is $35 a month, which is a dollar and 10 cents a day. So what we are asking, we have 500 young people that we need sponsored, and we are asking whoever wants a 12-month commitment, you can do it year by year, it's not for the rest of your life, a 12-month commitment to support these children at $35 a month, that's what we're, that's how you can help. Can, and how can people find you and uh, keep track of you, either social media or how can they make that donation? Absolutely. So you can go to Shine on Sierra Leone at Shine on Sierra Leone on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. Um, my personal Instagram is at Tiffany Persons. And if you go to our website, it is shineonsierraleone.org.
And if you go to any of those places, you'll be able to make that contribution that I'm mentioning of the $35 per month, which is a dollar and 10 cents a day. And it makes the world of difference, literally life-changing. It um, is, no, it's truly life-changing. Yeah, a dollar and 10 cents, and you'll be able to do all of that for a child. I mean, that's incredible. Tiffany, you really are doing some incredible life-changing work. Thank you so much for coming to talk with us here on Reppin. We do a signature sign-off here. Let us know who you are and let us know what you represent. This is Tiffany Persons, casting director and founder of Shine on Sierra Leone. And I represent human connection. Thanks to Tiffany Persons for hanging out with us here on Reppin. What an incredible conversation. Go check out her foundation, Shine On. You can find them at shineonsierraleone.org. If you can, please make a donation. A dollar and 10 cents can help transform a child's life. Next time on Reppin, we're traveling across the globe to Germany, where we connect with model Benjamin Melzer, who is the first trans man to appear on the cover of Men's Health magazine. Benjamin's going to share his experiences and also a story of why Ashton Kutcher reached out to him, and he's going to let us know if he's been able to finally find peace. So check us out. Continued thanks to Nelson Pinero for working his magic as my technical director and musical composer. Love and thanks to Gracie Khan for being in my life. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Till next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.